We're in the fourth week of Lent, which means we're also in the fourth week of our series in the book of Jonah. Uh, and in Jonah, we've been connecting with God's passion for cities. We've been considering how God calls us to go, to go into the great cities, to go even into our own city, to seek its good and to seek its renewal. We've also been looking at how we flee from this call of God. Because the problem we've encountered is that like Jonah, we would often choose our own demise rather than living with a fuller picture of who God really is. And so we flee, and so we run. But God's hands aren't tied by our disobedience. And God didn't give up on Jonah even in his flight. And as we saw last week, when Jonah could flee no further from God, when Jonah found himself in the belly of a great fish, in the belly of Sheol, he finally prayed. But his prayer it wasn't all that impressive. It was actually a little narcissistic. It lacked any true confession. And yet God still responded to Jonah's narcissistic, confessionless prayer. Jonah shows the slightest inclination in his heart to turn towards God, and God says, I can work with that. This week, we join Jonah as he finally heads into Nineveh. Jonah finally walks in his call, and in his footsteps, we discover that our primary calling is always to God himself. That the people and the place that God calls us to play a role in shaping that calling. And we'll see uh, what Jonah has to learn from Nineveh. And in turn, we'll also see what we have to learn from our own city, what we can learn from Vancouver. Because God's people, they never stand above the people they're called to. They stand with them on God's behalf. That's the big idea this morning. So open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. In a sense, the book of Jonah, it begins again. In chapter 1, the book starts with Jonah's calling, and here in chapter 3, we read about his calling again. And in the first week, we didn't have a chance to really dig into the nature of Jonah's calling. But the fact that he brings it up again, it seems like he wants us to consider the calling of God. But before I, I say too much more, let's take a moment to dig into some true truth about calling. Can we admit, as Christians, that when we talk about calling, it carries a lot of baggage? We all want to know, what's my calling? And people around us, they, 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 they dress it up in hyper-spiritualized language. And then we can feel all this pressure to figure out, what's my calling? And it can be a confusing process. It can carry a lot of worry and a lot of fear. What if I miss the call? What if I'm doing the wrong thing? It can invoke a lot of guilt and shame. You might look to other people. You might even look to people like me and say, oh, it must be nice to know your calling. I don't know if I know mine. What's wrong with me? Or it can just be downright frustrating and disheartening because you have no sense of what God wants for you. Or maybe you feel no sense of call in the work that you currently do. It just feels meaningless and mundane. If God is calling, many of us are still waiting for the phone to ring. But the book of Jonah reminds us that our primary calling is always to God himself. He has called us to himself. And even when God calls us to a specific thing or a specific task, it's always going to be an expression of who he is. 
God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh is an expression of God's passion for the nations, of God's passion for great cities, of God's passion to see every nation and tribe reconciled to himself. And yes, sometimes God's calling is explicit. Sometimes it is audible for people. I'm not going to deny that happens. That happens here in Jonah. But more often than not, God's calling isn't explicit. And when God is silent on the matter of what should I do with my life, I don't think we should automatically interpret that silence as a negative thing. I think it's permission. I think God's giving us freedom. I think God's asking us a liberating question. I think he's asking us what you know in light of me, what you know about yourself. And in discussing these things with the people I've put around your life and the issues you see in the world, what do you want to do? And no matter what you do, you're always going to do it in light of who God is and what it means to follow him in his ways. What I want you to hear is that God doesn't want us to have needless existential crises when it comes to discerning our calling. We may actually have many different expressions of our calling in our lives. What you do for this season might be different 10 years from now and then different again. We might even get it wrong at times. We might even run from it for seasons. But, and this is an important but, underline this in your Bible, verse 1 in chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The calling isn't off the table even though Jonah ran from it. The calling isn't off the table even though Jonah had it 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. The calling isn't off the table even though Jonah hasn't even repented yet. The calling isn't off the table even though Jonah isn't ready to embrace who God fully is. And even more importantly, there isn't a single word from God about everything that's gone down. God doesn't heap up shame on Jonah for fleeing. He doesn't recount all of his mistakes. God simply offers the call, the same call, a second time which means you don't have to worry about missing your call or for settling for plan B or C or D or Z. Jonah is offered God's plan A a second time. Do you think Jonah fleeing took God by surprise? Of course it didn't. Our confusion, our indecision, even our blatant running from God doesn't thwart God's plans for us. And in fact, God can use these things to prime us to walk more fully in our calling to him. Everything that Jonah has gone through has prepared him to walk more fully in this calling of God. God calls Jonah a second time, and he doesn't soften the call either. It's just as challenging as the first time. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. In this, we see calling, it always involves risk and dependency. Nineveh, it is a risky place to go. And the outcome, it's not certain, and Jonah doesn't get a full picture from God. He doesn't even know what he's going to proclaim. God says, I'll give you the message when you get there. Jonah just gets a piece at a time. Because following God, following Jesus in our lives is an unfolding story. We don't get all the details of how things will go. We simply get enough to be faithful in the present. 
You can't know what it's going to mean to follow Jesus five years from now. You can't know what it's going to mean to follow Jesus a year from now. You can't even know what it's going to mean to follow Jesus tomorrow. All we can do is be faithful in the present in light of what we do understand about his desires for us. Now, to our surprise, Jonah finally accepts the call. Verse 3, this is a turning point in the book. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He arose and he went, and and we'll look at this next week. This is begrudging faithfulness at best. But for now, we simply follow Jonah on his way into Nineveh. And we read in verses 3 and 4. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Jonah, he gets to this great city, Nineveh. And its sheer size is highlighted over and over in his book. It's bigness, Jonah's smallness. You know, for some people, it's photos taken uh, by the, the Hubble telescope of the universe that makes them think, like, oh man, I am really small. I'm just going to be honest with you. It does nothing for me. I look at those little, those little stars and I, it doesn't sink in that I'm like even smaller than one of those dots, you know? <laughs> but I do remember... The first time I went to New York City, Julia and I, like good tourists, went to Times Square, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, I am really small. You know, the world does not revolve around me at all. The Hubble telescope ain't got nothing on New York City. What is Jonah compared to Nineveh? Nineveh was the zenith of cultural civilization in that day. And it was also a brutal and violent city. What impact could Jonah have? You see, often, if not always, God will call us into situations and places beyond our own abilities so that we depend on him. Jonah lacked spiritual maturity. He lacked influence. But God called him to a place where he was weak and vulnerable, and exposed as needy, so he could see God's power and strength on display. Anything that happens in Nineveh, it's not going to be because of Jonah's stature. He's small. The city is big, but God, he's even bigger. And just as Jonah pales in size in comparison to the city, his message is just as small. It's only five words in the Hebrew. Look at verse 4. He began to call out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. In terms of prophetic messages in Scripture, this is on the brief side. It's very brief. I mean, Isaiah, 66 chapters. You know, Jeremiah, 52 chapters. Ezekiel, 48 chapters. Jonah, five words. If I got up on Sunday and said, you know, Yet in 40 days, Vancouver shall be overthrown. And I sat down, and you'd all just kind of sit there and be like, all right, I think we clap now. Uh, And some of you, you'd be thinking, all right, short sermon. Way to go, Alistair. Let's go get lunch. Jonah's message, it's not much. It's not that impressive. Can you imagine being in his shoes, walking around a huge urban center, proclaiming a message like this? What difference could it possibly make? What could God possibly do with it? 
There's nothing to suggest either that Jonah's truncating God's message or that he's holding back. This is just the message he received. It's not eloquent, it's not verbose, it's brief, but it is loaded. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 is an important number in the scriptures, whether it's Noah's 40 days on the ark or Israel's 40 years in the wilderness or Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the wilderness or Jesus' 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. 40 is an important number. Eugene Peterson, he puts it this way, 40 days is a period for testing the reality of one's life, examining it for truth, for authenticity. If the 40 does its proper work, life begins in a new way. If the 40 is ignored, life is destroyed. Nineveh has 40 days. The question is, what will the outcome be? Will, Will life burst forth from that place? Or will life be destroyed? And on the surface, it sounds like Jonah is simply saying, destruction is coming your way, Nineveh. But that isn't exactly what he says. He says, Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is a cheeky little word in the Hebrew, overthrown. And it surely bothered Jonah. He probably thought, why this word, Lord? Its basic meaning is to turn. And so in some instances in Scripture, Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, overthrown. This is the sort of outcome Jonah's hoping for Nineveh. But in other instances, it can mean to turn, to be transformed, which is obviously God's hope for Nineveh. The word here is not an accident. In 40 days, there are two possible outcomes for Nineveh. They can be overturned by God, or they can be turned around by God. And in Nineveh, the 40 days did its proper work. Look at verses 5 through 6. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. If you could sum up Nineveh's response in one word, what would it be? Repentance. And their repentance is thorough. They believed God. From the greatest to the least, they turned. They put on the traditional garb of of sackcloth. This is itchy, itchy stuff. Uncomfortable. And a decree is sent out from the king, a citywide decree, that everybody needs to repent. And the animals have to even participate, people. The animals. And the king commands that everyone, verse 8, repents of their evil and repents of the violence of their hands. This is a shocking message from the king of Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh was a bad, bad place. One scholar describes them as the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. The king calls out their social and cultural corruption. He points to their spiritual bankruptcy, and he says, our violence needs to cease. It's an offense to God, and we are all at risk of perishing. We need to repent. 
This is a disproportionate response to the short message of a, a foreign, unknown prophet. It reminds us, when God calls us, he is always ahead of us. As God's people go, they find him already there waiting for them. God calls Jonah to go, but God has already been preparing Nineveh for this moment. Jonah can't take any credit. Nineveh's response is a work of God. It's not Jonah's job to save Nineveh. That's God's job. But Jonah had a part to play. He had to speak. He had to proclaim. He had to live out his calling. And wherever and however God calls us to participate in our city's renewal, we're only joining him in what he's already doing. He's already at work. He's already at work in our classrooms. He's already at work in our offices, in our homes, in our public transit, in our restaurants, even in our parliament. Whatever our work may be, God is already there. But he does have a part for each of us to play. And our job isn't to bring God to anybody, but to help them see how God is already at work. But stepping back, it's easy to get caught up in this moment. God brought citywide renewal to Nineveh. This is revival. This is amazing. Can you imagine if this happened today? If people in the streets of Vancouver just started repenting and a decree from the mayor of Vancouver comes out declaring that even the miniature dogs of Yale Town need to repent. Repent, doggy. <laughs> but this moment is even more awe-inspiring, remembering the context that it all takes place in. Jonah learned that the people and the place God calls us to play an important part in our calling to God himself. Think about this with me. What was lacking in Jonah's life? Repentance. Remember his prayer in the belly of the fish. No confession. No, I'm sorry for running from you, God. Just wanted out of a bad circumstance. There's no repentance in Jonah's life yet. What does Nineveh model to Jonah then? Repentance. They make explicit something that's lacking in Jonah's primary calling. Something that's lacking in Jonah's relationship with God. Jonah still needs to repent. Wicked Nineveh can see their own evil and repent of it, but Jonah still can't see his. And in the bigger picture, this matters all the more. What was lacking in Israel during this time in the 8th century BC? Repentance. The nation was spiritually bankrupt. Their king was corrupt. They were all about their nationalism and building up their boundaries. But they were spiritually void. They had no vibrancy with Yahweh. They too needed to return to God in repentance. But we also have to ask, what was lacking in Nineveh? If you compare Nineveh's response to the sailors that were on the boat with Jonah, there is only repentance. There is no mention of God's personal name, Yahweh. There's no mention of making commitments to follow God. They still need the full picture of who this God really is. They still need to know who it is that they need to believe in and how to follow his ways. You see, Jonah needs his calling to Nineveh for his calling to God. They model something that he lacks. But in the same way, Israel needs Nineveh for their calling to God. 
Israel needs spiritual renewal. They need to turn to God in repentance. And Nineveh models this for them. But Nineveh needs Israel. Nineveh needs Israel to return to their primary calling. Because if Israel is truly spiritually renewed, their heart will begin to beat for the nations around them because they are called to be a blessing and a light to all of the nations and to make God known because God is a God whose heart beats for all the nations. Jonah, he's learned this important lesson that the people and the place God calls us to play a huge role in deepening our own calling to God himself. And Jonah sees that his calling cannot be separated from a people in place because God is a God of people in places. Think about Jesus. His call to proclaim the gospel. He, he, he cried out, the kingdom of God is at hand. But he went to people. We get names. Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, Mary, Martha, Jairus. And he went to places, you know, Galilee, Samaria, Caesarea, Jericho, Jerusalem. Jonah's calling as a prophet started with the people, the Hebrews in Israel, and he goes to another people, the Assyrians in Nineveh. And you'll have your people in place too. Your people might be your co-workers, and your place might be your office space. Your people might be coffee addicts, and your place might be the coffee shop. Your people might be students, your place might be the school. Your people might be the sick, and your place might be in a hospital. Your people might be your family, your place might be your home. And we can go on and on and on. But the common thread is the way in which we follow Jesus into the places and people in our lives. Your primary calling to follow Jesus isn't ever put on pause. And that calling goes with us into every place and to every person in our lives. And it shapes how we relate to them. It changes the way that we care for them and love them and listen to them and serve them and bear their burdens and even the way we talk about them. And it changes the way we see them because people aren't projects. They matter to God. You have never locked eyes with a person that God does not love, who is made in his image, and you have never locked eyes with someone that God does not want to reveal himself to. They're not projects. We're simply invited to the people God's placed in our lives to share this great news of the gospel, to show them how God is already at work in their lives and around them. But how on earth does our calling to the people in the city of Vancouver complement our faith, like Jonah's calling to Nineveh complemented his faith and Israel's call. Well, first, our city's shortcomings can point out our own shortcomings. Just as Nineveh's uh, evil exposes Jonah's own evil, Vancouver's apathy can expose our own apathy. Because when it comes to Vancouver's spiritual climate, we can bemoan its darkness, we can, we can talk about its lack and its needs to repent, but at the end of the day, the underlying issue is apathy. People just don't care about God. They don't care to talk about it. They don't care to know him. They just don't care about God. And it's a really hard thing to respond to because how do you help someone who doesn't care start to care? But our calling to apathetic Vancouver reveals our own apathy. Have we become apathetic to living out our calling to this city and its people? Have we given up? Do we think the city is too far gone? Have we stopped caring about the need and the urgency to share the gospel in all places with all people? But 
Vancouver also models good things for us. Vancouver is committed to justice and is grieved by injustice, whether it's homelessness or the unaffordable housing or abusing the environment or the corruption in government. Vancouverites model a desire and cry for justice. Are we as passionate about justice? Do we see our calling to the gospel as also a calling to seek justice for the oppressed, to see justice overflowing in the streets of our city? You see, like Jonah, we also need the people and the place God has called us to. Now, the shocking part for anyone listening or reading the book of Jonah is verse 10. Bad, evil Nineveh, the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world, God shows mercy. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There's some resolve. There's some reprieve. God has mercy. He sees Nineveh's citywide repentance as authentic. But Nineveh's incomplete response should create a crisis in anyone truly listening to Jonah. Who will go? Who will take the full message of God to the Ninevites? Will Israel reclaim their calling to be a light and a blessing to all the nations and make God known? Who will go to Nineveh? And of course, Jonah is asking us, will we return to our primary calling? And if we do, will we not just exist for ourselves, but also for the people and the place that God has called us to? We are always first and foremost called to follow Jesus. We should always hear Jesus' words, follow me, as our primary calling, our true calling. But when we accept Jesus' invitation, we can't expect a simple, tidy, comfortable, safe life. Because if we're called to Jesus, it always means following him in his ways. And he's the one who says, pick up your cross and follow me and deny yourself. If you want to be great in my kingdom, seek to be the least. If you want to matter, pour out your life in service to others. And as we follow Jesus, he will lead us to a people and a place. And the people and the places he leads us to will be messy and broken and complicated. And yet beauty within that brokenness can burst forth when Christ is with us. And if we follow Jesus, he will lead us into our own city. He will situate us with the people here. The question that we have to ask is this. In what way do we think Vancouver needs to be overturned? In what way do we think Vancouver needs to be overturned? Do we only focus on the negative? Vancouver needs to be overthrown. It's too far gone. It's apathetic towards God. Are we far too positive? Vancouver is great. It's the best city in the world. Nothing needs to change. Or can we focus on the possibility? What if Vancouver turned? What if God is already at work in this place? What if the gospel takes root here? What if it starts with us underground beneath the city and it starts with other churches? And what if it starts with communities being renewed by the gospel that transforms the way they relate to one another and then pours out into every area of their lives? What if it starts with people 
but then spreads into the halls of our homes and our workplaces and even our government, just like it did in Nineveh? What if we start to see these signs of renewal in our own city? What if the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, becomes our all? For each of us, unless God calls us to go elsewhere, Amy, we are called to this place and this people. Sorry, Amy. (laughs) And we're called to join him in this work. And here's the thing, if it feels difficult, if it feels overwhelming, if it feels like too much, if you feel like you're too small for the task at hand, then we're actually encountering our true calling. Because we are too small. We are too weak. The task is too big for us. We don't have what it takes to do it alone. It's only possible for us because Jesus was faithful to the place and the people he was called to. And the place he was called to was called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the mount where he was crucified. This was his calling. He said, this is why I came, the way of the cross. And he went to the place we could never go, but the place we deserve to go. He went to the place that no one could endure, but he went for a people. He went for us. He went for everyone. And in doing so, he exposes our lack. He he exposes our brokenness. He exposes how we flee from God and how we rebel against God. And he exposes our own evil. But in Golgotha, we discover we are far worse than we dare imagine. But in Golgotha, we also discover that we are far more loved than we can dare fathom. Because Jesus was overturned by God's wrath so we can turn to God and find mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's why God can show mercy to Jonah. That's why God can show mercy to Nineveh. That's why God can show mercy to Vancouver because the death and resurrection of Christ transcends time and space. Our primary calling then is to Jesus because he was called to us and accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And if you're called to follow him, And you are. And trust me, there is no better time than right now to begin that journey if you haven't. You're called to the one who has the power to transform your own soul, but also the one who has the power to renew our city. Our part in our city's renewal, it might be small. It might appear insignificant. It might even be unnoticeable compared to the bigness of everything that's around us. Jonah was small. His message wasn't much. But he joined the God who can take the smallest acts of faithfulness and use them to do far more than we can dare ask or imagine. 